This morning, we're going to discuss the 10th phrase in the Apostles' Creed. We've been in the midst of a series of teachings on the foundations of the faith as they're taught in the Apostles' Creed. This morning, we said, after playing some songs, let's continue our worship by declaring our faith as it's found in in the Apostles' Creed. One of the things that the Creed does for us is it helps us to identify those things which the church has always believed at all times and in all places. So that's not just over the 2,000 years of history, but also in every place in the world, these are the things which the church of Jesus Christ has always believed, that God is the father of everything and he's the creator, that his son Jesus came down from heaven for us, for our salvation. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He died by, at the hands of the Romans under Pontius Pilate. Um, he not only was crucified, he actually really was dead and then buried. I mean, they, they just hammer that home. He was crucified, dead, and buried. It's, it's like something falling down the stairs. It's got this heavy weight to it. So Jesus really had died and he resurrected and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And last week we had touched on the Holy Spirit, what his role over time was and is in the unfolding of redemptive history. That is, God has always had a plan to restore and redeem his creation, which had gone astray in the fall in the garden at the hands of Adam and Eve. And he had always had a plan to redeem his people. And so when we talk about the unfolding of redemptive history, we just mean that God's plan has become clearer and clearer and clearer throughout the years, through the old covenant, all the way up to the coming of Jesus, the sending of the Holy Spirit, and today we'll talk about the establishment of the church. So this 10th phrase in the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now that is uh, not the way we say it. We actually say the Holy Universal Church, and I'll talk about that, why, why we say universal instead of Catholic. But here's some things we're going to look at today that relate to this phrase, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. We're going to first look at baptism and what its role is and, and how it's related to the church. We're going to look at what the church means, the word church. We're going to look at What happened in Pentecost? For so many of us who have come up in charismatic churches or grown up in Pentecostal movements, we just kind of think, well, at Pentecost, they spoke in tongues. And that's true, they did, but Pentecost is bigger than just speaking in tongues. Um, We're going to look at this word Catholic, um, what it means and, and why it's important for us to understand what the creed is saying when people say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Um, we're going to look at the, this idea of the true invisible church. That is how we, how we um, reconcile the idea that there are many people who are unbelievers who just go to church week by week. And how do, how do we discuss or how do we talk about this idea of a church being holy if we know that there are many people who are really uh, unconverted, but they they still go to church. Just as going to church, uh, uh, just as going to McDonald's doesn't make me a hamburger, so also going to church doesn't make me a Christian. So this idea that there can be sinners 
in the midst of a pure congregation, how do we, how do we reconcile that? Um, and then finally, we're going to look at our role as members of the church. So, uh, first we'll discuss baptism. Baptism is the covenant symbol by which one, uh, by which a person is admitted entrance into the people of God. This is where our reading starts off today. Um, at the beginning of it, Jesus found out that the Pharisees found out that Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John. John had come, if you remember, with a baptism of repentance, telling the people of Israel to turn away from their sins and to follow God. He said, it's not enough to do the works of the law or the, the, the regulations of the law, but inwardly still hate God and hate your brother. John the Baptist came saying to the Pharisees that they needed to repent. And yet we know that the Pharisees were the most uh, strict people of all of the people of Israel who kept the law with meticulous detail. But Jesus had said concerning the Pharisees that they had neglected the weightier provisions of the law. They had forgotten mercy and uh, love. They had, they had gone into sacrifice, but had ignored God's heart. And so Jesus is baptizing people just as John was. Jesus is calling people to repentance from sin and to turn to faith in God and to join this new people. So when the Pharisees saw this, they got angry. And the reason they got angry is everyone at the time identified with this event as them turning from the religious, pharisaical, fake authority to the true authority that was uh, being set up in the ministry of Jesus. And so why, why is there trouble? Well, everybody kind of got it. They, they understood that these people that Jesus was baptizing, which at the time, at the beginning of this verse, our reading today said that this had grown bigger than John's ministry. Jesus was calling people to repentance. And so they're, they're beginning to form a division in the people of Israel, in the nation of Israel. There are those who are beginning to hear the word of the Lord and to change and to turn from sin and, and live in righteousness towards God. And then there's these other people, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, and those who would follow them who weren't hearing the word of Christ. And they weren't hearing the message of Jesus and uh, they weren't seeing him as the Messiah. And so there's trouble. Just as God brought the Israelites out of Egypt initially, and they crossed through the Red Sea, so also God calls his people out from amongst not only the people of Israel, but also the earth, and they pass through the waters of baptism and gain entrance into this new community called the church or the people of God. Baptism, therefore, is the sign and ceremony of an individual turning away from the world the flesh and the devil, and being united with Christ and joining his people. So if we understand that baptism is entrance into this thing called the church, it might be helpful to discuss what the church is. Um, as a side note, if you have not been water baptized, but you place faith and trust in Christ, if you, if you believe that Christ is the wrath-removing sacrifice by which you can have a relationship with the Father. If you have not been baptized, yet you believe that, the word of the Lord to you is uh, to follow Christ's command and be baptized. Um, we don't have 
a ton of time to go into just a teaching on water baptism, but it is a neglected, often neglected sign today, but it's very important. And um, I'll just leave it at that. You should be water baptized if you haven't been. So this idea that we're passing through the waters of baptism to gain entrance to this people called the church. Well, what is this word church? We hear it so often. Um, We're in the midst of a remodeling project here at the church, and we, we know that we're fixing the building, but we say, you know, we're, we're remodeling the church. Well, the church is not a building. The church is a people. And this word church actually comes from a Greek word called ekklesia. And this word is commonly referred to a group of democratic representatives in the city of Athens or any other nation state in the, the um, realm of Greece at the time in ancient Greece. So this idea was that the people in Athens would, um, they would elect certain free men non-slaves, non-females, um, men, they would uh, elect these guys. And the ecclesia, the name of these elected people, they would go and meet in a place in Athens. And this group was in charge of a number of things like deciding if we should go to war, deciding if we should raise or lower taxes in the city deciding how we should appropriate funds that have already been raised, deciding who would be generals and things like this. This, this group was in charge of ruling and administering the city of Athens. And so this notion of ecclesia, it's an assembly called forth or an assembly called out from amongst. And um, this notion of the church we see show up in Jesus's discussion with Peter about who he is. In Matthew 16, 13 through 19, we read, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? The son of man is a term for Jesus. And he's talking to his disciples, who am I? In verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So it's great. There's a popular opinion poll. Jesus moves the question a little closer to them. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. There's a, a word play in the scriptures. Um, have you ever noticed that the scriptures contain word plays or, or funny parts? Um, we had one in the reading today where the woman uh, says to Jesus, you know, I don't have a husband. And he says, right, you don't have a husband. You've had five and the one you're with now isn't your husband. And she says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of hilarious. The scripture does use humor and you should, uh, you should encounter it. It's great. It becomes one of the best sources of bad jokes. Um, but, but the scripture uses humor. Here, this isn't humorous. It's it's a little funny. It's a pun, which I use puns almost exclusively. My humor is very witty and very flat. Um, but here is a here is a pun. He says, "On you, Peter, 
uh, or blessed are you, Peter. Peter is is a word that means uh, strong or or uh, if you can think of like um, maybe what what's that kind of rock that fragments apart? Shale. shale. You can think of this name Peter to be like shale. You're you're strong and hard and flat and really um, brittle, but you're but you're dense and you're you're firm. On this rock, this on this Petra, um, on this rock, I will build my church. But he doesn't, that, that's not, he's not saying that Peter is going to be like an actual stone that is then used to build a building. He's saying that on this rock of revelation of Jesus being the Christ, I will build my called out assembly. I'm going to build a group of people who are called out from amongst the people of Israel and the world, and I'm going to create an assembly of people who rule and reign, um, and they're going to be built upon the foundation of Jesus as the Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. Um, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, or the rock of Revelation, I will build my called out assembly and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Remember the ecclesia is in charge of going to war. They're in charge of deciding when to go to war. They're going to war against hell and against sin and Satan and the powers of evil. And they won't, uh, the powers of evil will not be able to overcome this ecclesia. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That glacia was also in charge of the documents uh, of public record, and um, we're not going to get into binding and loosing or, or anything like that, but there's a notion that he's also saying, I'm also going to give you, uh, I'm going to entrust you with um, authority of the word, that is the, the keys of the kingdom are the ways by which people can come into the kingdom. You're going to be able to, to open up people's eyes to the scripture. So this idea of a church, Jesus is calling out an assembly. He's not building a building. He's not merely building a building. He's calling a people. And where are they being called out from? We're going to leave that question for just a bit and talk about our reading today. So this woman that Jesus meets, she says that she's a daughter of Jacob. And to help you understand that, the Samaritans were a group of people who traced their ancestry back to Jacob, and the Jews had no communion, they had no fellowship with Samaritans. And so it's remarkable that Jesus is even talking to her, and the reason is, is Jews had a... um, they, Jews had missed, at this time, the people of Israel, they had missed this idea in the Old Covenant that the people of Israel were always expanding and taking more land and, and developing more culturally. And a number of them had closed themselves down to this idea that anyone but the Jews would inherit salvation. And so they began to take exception with other Uh, peoples around them who were part Jewish in their ancestry and not. And so this is where we pick up this idea. It doesn't make sense without a little history to understand that the Samaritans hated the Jews. It's not simply a racism thing. It's racism with religion uh, mixed in. It's, It's a really intense hatred that the Jews have for the Samaritans. 
that's why the story of the Good Samaritan is Jesus, one of Jesus' rebuke of the people of Israel. Because he says that these people that you think aren't righteous, they were the only one to help this person in need. So anyway, there's this Samaritan woman and Jesus, they're talking, they shouldn't be. This is publicly, um, you know, this is not appropriate. Jesus could get in trouble doing this. So Jesus asks her for water and she says, uh, well, Jesus first, you know, says, "Can can you give me some water? And she says, we're not supposed to be talking. And then he goes on to say, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water. They have this prophetic encounter where Jesus asks to meet her husband and, and uh, the father reveals to Jesus that she doesn't actually have a husband. She uh, right now in a, in a sense, but, sh- but that she's had five husbands and she's identified as one who doesn't have a current husband. So not only is she a Samaritan, but she's living with a man whom she's not married to. So in the eyes of the Jewish people at, th- at this day, and even in our eyes, she would be considered an adulteress. She's living with someone who she's not married to. But Jesus's response to this revelation of her adultery is not condemnation. And it's not even a stern word. In fact, he kind of moves on right away. And he says that he's going to give her some living water. And um, she, after hearing this prophetic word from the Lord, this word of knowledge, she, she comes to realize, sir, you're a prophet. So after she recognizes Jesus's ability to hear God, his, his pro- prophetic authority, she then asks him a question. She asks him a question about what righteousness is. That is, are, am I understanding the, the, the Jews to have authority to say you can only worship in Jerusalem because our fathers had told us we can worship here on this mountain? And Jesus begins to uh, answer this question of, of where they're going to worship. Jesus then says that an hour is coming and is almost here where no one will worship in Jerusalem but the worship that the worshipers that the father has desired they're going to worship not in Jerusalem not in a physical temple but they're going to worship in spirit and in truth these are going to be worshipers who worship from the heart and worshipers who worship in truth they're not going to be people who merely externally do sacrifices but rather they're going to be a people who themselves are the temple so with this notion of church, let's look again at this verse in, in John 4, 25 through 26. It, if you don't remember the, the history uh, or the backstory of verses before this, it does seem kind of confusing. Jesus says there's an hour coming when no one's going to worship in Jerusalem on this mountain or that mountain, but they're going to worship in spirit and truth. And then it seems as if there's a non sequitur here in verse 25. Um, Jesus said to her, woman, believe the hour's coming, verse 21, verse 23, it's coming and now here where they're not going to worship on a mountain, but the father is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and truth. And they're not going to worship on a mountain in Jerusalem or a mountain in Samaria. They're going to worship in spirit and truth. And then she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. Does that feel like a non sequitur to you? It does. 
a little bit. What she's saying, what we can read from the text is, she understood that a prophetic role of the Messiah was the removal of exclusive worship in Jerusalem and the opening of worship of the Father, true worship of the Father, to all people in all places. She, she totally got it. And, and she totally knew in, in this verse, she literally identifies, this is kind of like Peter saying, you're the Christ. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will tell us all the things that pertain to righteousness. That is, how do we rightly worship God? And Jesus says to her, I am that Messiah. And so Jesus is calling out these people, not just from mountains in Israel, but mountains all over the earth. These people who have desired to meet God, these true children of God, Jesus is calling them and he's calling them out. So the question that we have is that he is calling them from not only the people of Israel, but all places. Her response to Christ in that moment saying, I know that there is a Messiah who's coming and this is what he's going to do, revealed her to be a true daughter of God, not merely a daughter of Jacob, not merely a Samaritan. She really had true authentic faith. This is kind of the point of Galatians 2, that that Abraham trusted God and looked forward and saw uh, the, the day of Jesus and in the spirit really was part of this authentic group of true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. So this notion that the people of Israel were the chosen special people, this this idea is beginning to be shaken. Jesus is, is really kind of messing with the authority, the false authority structures of the day. So this answer, the answer to our question, where is Jesus calling these people out from amongst? He's calling them out from the, the people of Israel, this mixture that was going on, the evil religious leaders and the true authentic worshipers of God, the true children of God. And these true children are recognized by their recognition of Christ as the Messiah. This is why we're not in a room that looks quite different and why we don't have yarmulkes on our head. This is why the church is not the people of Israel. Um, no disrespect to our um, hopeful brothers in, in Judaism who, who we would love to minister to and explain the scriptures to, but this is why uh, we, you don't have to be circumcised to come to faith. This is the point of Galatians 2 and 3. It's, it's no longer a cultural identification merely. It includes that sometimes in different ways, but it's not merely a righteousness that's done in an external way. See, God had never intended for the doing of the works of the law to produce righteousness, and indeed it can't. Merely maintaining a set of rules does not produce faith in God or faith in Christ. And so those who were of the nation of Israel uh, occasionally had true authentic faith, and Jesus is beginning to highlight this distinction. So after Jesus ascended to the heavens, he then tells his group of followers to wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And when this comes, we all know the story pretty, pretty well. The, there's a sound that's over heaven. Last week, we had looked at how 
in Genesis 1, there was the earth and the spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. And Noah had sent out the dove over the earth covered with water. So these new Christians in Jerusalem, they had already passed through the waters of baptism. They had left the people of Israel and were called to join the people of God. And we hear what what happens in Acts chapter 2. There's a sound from heaven, a great rushing wind. The, The Holy Spirit came and moved over this new people, the people of God, the church. And what happens? Tongues of fire descend and appear among, uh, among the believers on top of their heads. They speak with new tongues. And then what takes place? All of these Jews who had come from all of Asia Minor and the surrounding area all over the Roman Empire were in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Peter stands up and delivers the message of the church that Jesus is both Messiah and the Son of God. These two roles of Christ and Emmanuel combined together. And then he makes a, a claim to them, what should they do? When they're, they're pierced to the core after hearing that they had just killed God in the flesh. Peter testifies to them that they, the, the city that kills the prophets, they had neither received the prophets nor had they received the final son, Jesus, uh, or the 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 final messenger, the son of God, Jesus, they had killed him as well. So what is the message that he says to them? He says, you should repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Do you see, do you see what's going on in Acts 2? It's, I love being a charismatic. Um, I'm, I'm probably the most charismatic person I know because uh, I usually... You know, I I usually hang out with mostly reformed guys who don't, uh, they're like closet charismatics. They, they believe in the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, but we, it's not, we're not supposed to talk about it. So I, I love, I, I love the reformed church. It's phenomenal. It's great. But at the same time, um, the charismatic church has so focused on the gifts of the Spirit that we tend to miss the importance of what happens in Acts chapter 2. And we, we lose the importance of the day of Pentecost. See, the day of Pentecost was an undoing of the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, there was this, right, this group of self-righteous people who were attempting to build a city that ascended into the heavens to, to, to reach up toward God. And God came down in Genesis and, uh, and, and had had dispersed those people. He had confused their language. And in Pentecost, this is an undoing of that. He gives the church the ability to speak in tongues as a sign of them going out into all the earth. And in that same day, people who were all from Asia Minor had come and heard the word of Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God and Messiah. They had repented from their sins they had apparently been baptized because Peter says that they, um, that they should be baptized. When they're, when they're pierced to the core, they ask, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized. And then it goes on to say, and God added to their number 3,000 souls. Scripturally, it wouldn't have said that he added 3,000 unless all 3,000 of those people had been baptized. 
So all these people get baptized and join this new assembly that's called out from amongst not only the people of Israel, the, the nation, the cultural identity of faith in God surrounded or based on doing the works of the law, but also all of these Hellenistic Jews, these Jews who were believing uh, throughout all of Asia Minor. And so there's a, a transition that begun, begins to happen. So what happened in Pentecost was not just the, the you know, designation of the Holy Spirit to individuals so they could speak in tongues. Pentecost was Jesus, the ascended risen King, sitting at the right hand of the Father, pouring forth the Holy Spirit and establishing his presence in this new temple. In First in Peter, uh, Peter really uh, drives home this idea, and it's fitting because Peter was uh, uh, the one at, at the beginning before Paul, who was kind of the head apostle. He says, what's happening to you? You're being fitted together as living stones built on a foundation of Jesus Christ. So they're being, the, the individual believers, their lives are being fitted together to form a living temple, not just a building temple, a living temple. So what, what has to take place after the temple? Well, if you remember uh, from the old covenant, Solomon had built the temple and then there's this prayer that Solomon prays and he asks God to come and the Holy Spirit or the glory of God filled the temple so strongly that everybody just kind of got knocked out. They weren't, weren't able to minister. The day of Pentecost was another filling, but now this temple was a temple that would go on until the end of the age. This temple is a group of believers and the Holy Spirit dwells not only in each believer in this temple, but also in this temple as a collective. And so this is what we are saying, this notion of a a holy church, this holiness that we talk about is not our holiness. It's not your obedience to Christ that makes the church holy. Although it, that is supposed to follow, the, what makes the church holy is God's designated delivery of the Holy Spirit to reside in the people of God, to be a prophetic witness and an authentic evangelistic witness to the earth of what Jesus has done. So this is why the creed first discusses the Holy Spirit before it says the Holy Church. The, the Holy Spirit is what makes the church holy. So what is this idea now that we've just discussed that the, the day of Pentecost was kind of a symbol that the church was going to go out throughout the whole earth? What does it mean for the church to go out throughout the whole earth? Um, our church, our, our building, our, our, our building is on Darst Avenue. Our people live in the, mostly in the east side of Dayton, some um, other places. But our church, our local expression, is not throughout the whole earth. We have some people from around the earth who've come and have lived here, which we love. Our Kenyans and our, um, our New Jerseyans, which I consider to be a different planet. Um, I'm just kidding. I love Jersey. Uh, Charles came from, uh, originally from Guam. We've got people from the whole earth coming here, but also the church is going throughout the whole earth. So what does it mean that we've got this group of people spread across the earth? How, how are they all one? Well, they're all one in this notion of the word Catholic. We uh, do not say in our recitation of the creed, I believe in the holy Catholic church. We say, I believe in the holy universal church. So the word Catholic merely means universal. 
When we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we are not saying, I believe in the Roman Catholic Church. Although there are many great believers in the Roman Catholic Church, um, we're not saying that we believe they are the authentic, true group of Christians, and there's nobody else other than Romans, uh, the Romans, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, who actually are Christians. We've actually had um, one person who thought we were Roman Catholic because we had said the creed. Don't ever get hung up. If you go to another church or you're doing a course in seminary or or you meet some other Christian and you recite the creed with them, let's say you're on vacation, and you hear them say the Holy Catholic Church, please do not get tripped up by that. It doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church. At the same time, we don't really, you know, have anything against the Roman Catholic Church. We're not, you know, we don't want to be mean to them or anything like that. So, um, even though we don't believe a lot of the things they believe, but so when we, when we discuss this notion of Catholicity or the idea that the church is one throughout all the earth, the, the church is one universally, we say that of the church, we mean that there is only one group of people on the earth whom Jesus has formed. Jesus didn't make a Baptist general conference and a Roman Catholic church and an apostolic network of churches, and he didn't make the house of prayer churches. He made a church. He made a group of people called out from Israel, called out from the world to turn away from sin. And and this is one group of people. So the question becomes, if there's one group of people, how how may we ask, uh, is there one true church when we know that there are groups who call themselves Christians, but have no measure of the grace of Christ among them? For example, um, not to pick on the Mormons, I lived in Salt Lake City for two years, and I had a number of Mormon people come to my door and, and ask me if I've heard the good news of Jesus. And I never said this, but was occasionally tempted to, yeah, have you. But the, the reason I say that is not to be mean to the Mormons. I love more. I had a, uh, I actually had a Mormon roommate for two years and it was great. But the Mormon church does not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. And that is a non-negotiable for Orthodox Christianity. The church has always maintained in all places that, uh, that Jesus is the Son of God, and being the Son of God, he's a member of the Trinity, he's fully divine, fully human. So, they call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, yet they don't follow or don't pass the standard of orthodoxy that the church has always believed. And by the way, that standard is clearly built on the New Testament. And they have another book, which none of the rest of the church, uh, you know, recognizes. And so how do, we, how do we discuss this idea of there being one church when we know that there are quasi-church groups, church groups who call themselves Christians, but aren't like the Jehovah's Witness or, or, or Mormonism? You know, what, what are we going to do with this? Well, there's a notion of the church invisible. And the answer might be that although we do not see a visible unity among Christians and local expressions of the body of Christ, we believe there exists only one true invisible church of which there are members throughout the world. And this true invisible church, the members are known by God, and that church is a holy, authentic witness of the apostolic faith to throughout the years to this day. And this is a, a prime tenet of Protestant 
theology. John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is uh, probably the largest book you'd ever try to read, mainly because it's a number of, it's like four volumes, and then there's an addendum. And in, I looked a few weeks ago at buying one of these things. On Amazon, if you buy the printed one, it's like $200, and it's really expensive. It's a big book. Um, John Calvin had a lot of time on his hands. But he says concerning this notion of the invisible church, he, he describes them as the group, that which is actually in God's presence, into which no persons are received, but those who are children of God by grace of adoption and true members of Christ by sanctification of the Holy Spirit. It includes not only the saints presently living on the earth, but all the elect from the beginning of the world. We're not going to go into the second phrase of this uh, week's portion of the Apostles' Creed, but it says, I believe in the Holy Universal Church or the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. This idea in, in Hebrews of great cloud of witnesses, uh, which are still speaking to this day by the scriptures and uh, the documents in church history, we take notice of other saints in other parts of the world, and we are encouraged by their faith. Uh, that's something that we did at the ARC conference. We went and met with other Christians and heard about what they're doing, whether it was just a letter that they had sent or whether they had actually shown up. And we were incur encouraged mutually by one another's faith. And so this idea of a church and a communion of, a communion of saints, um, it's a very, it's, this isn't, you know, this isn't just a Roman Catholic idea. This is a, this is a true biblical idea. So, okay, we've discussed that there's this group of people whom the Holy Spirit resides amongst and fills and dwells in, and, and they're this authentic witness of Jesus. Well, how does that get played out? What is, what is an authentic witness of Christ? Our role as the church universal, not just Grace Christian Fellowship in Dayton, Ohio, our role as the church is this. Robert Weber, in a book called Ancient Future Faith, which you can probably find in the back, it's a difficult book. Um, it's got a lot of terms that need careful, long readings, but it's a good book, and I found this a while ago and was encouraged. He says concerning our role that the church is intrinsically connected with Christ and his victory over the power of evil. The church is therefore to be regarded as a kind of continuation of the presence of Jesus in the world. Jesus is not only seated at the right hand of the Father, but is visibly and tangibly, tangibly present in and to the world through the church. It is a unique community of people in the world, a community like no other. We are not merely Boy Scouts of America or Girl Scouts of America. As much as I love Girl Scout cookies, we, that's not our goal. Our goal isn't to just let you, uh, you know, come to a meeting and, you know, sing some songs and, and you know, eat afterwards. That is, those things build community and <clears throat> build a, a culture and an identity. But the church does not exist for Sunday morning services. That's not the reason why we exist. We do those things and they're good, but that is not, we don't keep this machinery going just to keep the machinery going. 
Jesus did not say to his disciples, go into all the world and set up Sunday worship services and, you know, get fog machines and really cool bands and, you know, ask the people to give lots of money. That's not what Jesus said. He said to go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, immerse them in the life of of the Trinity. And so, our role is not merely to show up on Sundays. And this translates to you. What is your role? Your role is not just to show up here. Your role is to participate. So, when we come to join the people of God, when we when we enter toward those waters of baptism, we are not merely getting Christ. We come to submit and to serve amongst the people of God. We don't come to demand spiritual goods and services. You know, our, your, the way that you choose a church should not just be uh, what is like, are there people my age? You should really ask the question, what is the mission of this local expression of, of the body of Christ? What are they trying to do? Is there a notion of the apostolic teaching that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but also the Son of Man? He's not only God with us, he's also the Messiah. He's also tra- trampled over uh, Satan's sin and the grave. And you know, is there good apostolic teaching at that church? And apostolic, true apostolic teaching always leads to the same end of missions to all the earth. You cannot merely study good, you know, elementary Christology or, or you can't merely read the New Testament and find out about Jesus being Lord of all without desiring the, the Holy Spirit affecting a change for you to desire to go out. So, with that, we'll close. Uh, I would ask you this week to reflect. Many of you, this isn't uh, needed, but some of you, I would ask you to reflect, what am I doing to help the cause of the church that I belong to? If you identify as a member here, ask yourself, what am I doing? Am I training? Um, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that Christ gave gifts to the church of apostles, prophets, shepherds, evangelists, teachers. And he said, you can quote them in the wrong order. And, but he, he said, Christ gave these roles not to establish a group of people that do Sunday worship services. He said he gave these roles for the purpose of the building up of the saints for the work of the ministry. So when you come to the church, you get your life straightened out, you're built up, and then you get sent out for the work of the ministry. I would ask you to reflect this week, what am I doing to get prepared to do the work of the ministry? With that, let's close.